Welcome back to the Norwich Boxing Podcast with me, Andy White, and today with me, Martin Theobald, and making up the three, Terry Chapandama. We're back to our full strength side this weekend. Yeah, I was out in uh, Marseille doing some scouting last week. Yeah, sounds about right, mate. Yeah, yeah, no, big time. You're a big, big dog, aren't you? I'm a big, yeah. I mean, I had to fly home because, you know. You need to come back. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> it I, got a bit too <laughs> hairy. <laughs> as soon as the chairs start flying, I say, I'm on a fucking easy jet out of there. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, let's uh, dive into the lack of news. <laughs> although, although I did hear that Drago was there. Apparently, Drago, apparently yeah. he, he was the first guy to run across. That's it, he was the only one. <laughs> 400 England fans down, Kovalev. <laughs> Just ploughing through. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> let's, uh, let's get on to talking about someone who may have fared better if he was in the ruckus of, <laughs> of the stuff in France, Enzo Macronelli. What you guys got to talk about this dude? Um, well, it's the end of his career. He got uh, got taken out by Kucher at York Hall Saturday night. Um, it was a pretty. It wasn't a horrific knockout or anything, but this is a man who's like thirty five now. Is best, you know. I think people thought there may be a slight renaissance after he beat Roy Jones, but I think it just shows how shot Roy Jones was when Macronelli finished him with an uppercut. Um, but Macronelli's had a really, he's had a good distinguished career. He's not been like the elite, elite, elite level, but he's been up there. You know, he lost to David Hay at the O2 when he got spangled um, when David Hay unified the cruiserweight division. Um, that's what a lot of people remember him for, sadly, I guess, is that he was the one that kind of handed it over to David Hay at that weight. He never really seemingly had the confidence back, I guess. I think people thought maybe Gary Lockett might instill that in him. It didn't happen. Um and yeah, like he's you know that, that's the end. He's called time on his career after that. It's not the greatest way to see him go out, but I mean that Kucher, he's he seemed like a reasonable. I mean, he saw one round of it, I suppose. Um, but he seemed like a reasonable level fighter to uh, to come out of it. So, um, yeah, you know, best of wishes to uh, to Enzo Macronelli, but he's given us a lot, and it, it's time he calls it a day, I guess. Terry, you recoiled at the mention of Gary Lockett. What was that? Because Gary Lockett has <coughs> has a range of disasters on his hands, doesn't he? You know, he seems to pick up these these very overrated fighters, very limited skill wise. You know, he'll talk up a good game, and you know, the boxing industry loves Gary Lockett because he's one of them. But essentially, it's just with Nick Blackwell, you never get the sense that these guys know what they're doing in the ring. Um, if you go back to Macronelli's career, he was a he was meant to be a bigger version of Calzaghe but he never had the boxing now that Calzaghe had, but he had fast hands. And when you have fast hands, you become the problem to the opponent. So he built a whole career as a cruiserweight doing that until he met David Hay, who said, actually, anything you do, I've probably seen before. I'm experienced. There you go. You take some of my power. There was a theory at the time that Hay didn't have that much power, wasn't there? Which I think Macronelli, uh, I think he's even said that he kind of went into that fight assuming he could take the power of Hay. Um, and he was miles off, <laughs> miles off. Um, 
listen, an amateur David would have knocked out Enzo Macronelli that night. I just, I, I don't think the guy was was ever that good. And he got exposed against Olaf Falabi. Big shout out to Olaf Falabi, please. One more fight with Tony Bellew. One more. You can do it. Um, but no, um, he did. I was quite happy when Ola won that fight because, as everyone knows, he wasn't supposed to win. In the ninth round, he uncorked a right hand. And at that point, Macronelli should have gone because the way he got knocked out there, that takes years off your career. And he's kind of tried to rebuild at 175. It didn't work out. He thought it was a cruiserweight again. I think he's a tweener. I think that's what the Americans call them, where he just naturally sits between weights. Yeah. So I don't think he's, he's too big for light heavy. He's not really big enough for cruiser because when you look at him at cruiserweight, he doesn't look like he's bursting out of his skin, which is, you know, which is worrying because he should be looking that way. Because if you look at most cruiserweights, they look like they've boiled down from 215, 220, except with Tony Bellew. Who's a natural heavyweight? I've always <laughs> been a heavyweight. All these cruiserweights have been here for two weeks. I'm madder than a lot of them. I am the best. <laughs> Apologies, I just get into that. Sometimes. Well, that got re- that started to get really sort of camp and feminine towards the end. <laughs> Story of his career, I guess. Yeah, right, okay, I wondered if it was intentional. Life imitates art. So, so, just in conclusion, I'm glad he's retired. I think he has a lot to give the game. He's experienced. He came up a good way. I think. I think. Sorry, Calzaghi staff. Forget his name. Enzo. Enzo, Enzo Calzaghi was a great. Well, he was a good guy because he seemed to know the game. So there's a lot of knowledge in him, and I do hope he does. You know, manage his late father's boxing gym, and he starts to produce champions because he's had his time, and he has a lot to give the sport. So I really would like to see him on the circuit, adding value and giving back. But he's had a he's had a good career. He hasn't overachieved. He hasn't underachieved. He's kind of done what he should have done. So you know, now's now's a good time to bow out. Um, do you want to talk about the specifics of the fight or not? Or is it not worth it? He got hit with a left hook. It stiffened his legs up. The guy saw, and to be honest, give Kucha credit. He saw that pretty quickly. Distracted him with a couple more shots just to move the hands. Planted the left hook again. Ended the fight. <laughs> Probably a longer detailed explanation than the actual fight itself. Watch um, it on YouTube. It, 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 it's that first left hook I find impressive because it rocked him. And normally most people try and flurry, but Kusha didn't to his credit. Does some nice accurate punches just to distract and then bang, put the money shot back on him. So that's definitely the end of his career, is it? Yeah, no, he came out afterwards and said uh, he's done now. Um, He's confirmed it on Twitter. And I think rightly so as well. As Terry said, you know, he's had a a good career. Um, He's been a world champion. He's done more than most will ever achieve. Um, as I say, he's not the elite, elite level, but he's he's well, you know, he's been a world title holder. You have to respect that from him, and it is the right time for him to to bow out before he gets seriously damaged. You know, Kucha isn't one of the top five cruiserweights, or certainly not a present. Um, the thought of if Macronelli somehow made his way back to a world title fight right now, he could get seriously hurt. So, like, I think it is the right time to to call it a day. Okay. Um, anything to add, Terry, or not? <clears throat> um, just on the subject of cruiserweights, and you're absolutely right. If you look at the cruiserweight division at the moment, you've got Shumanov against Lebedev. Pretty big fight. Um, Usyk's fighting as well, isn't he? Uh, he that's is. just been agreed. <clears throat> so I think all the big guys at the crew in the cruiserweight division will be fighting each other soon. You've got Bradis looks- as well. He's yeah. He's an animal. All these guys are. Although Bell, he looks like he's without a dance partner, unfortunately. Seeing as Macronelli fight 
was meant to be on the agenda. So yeah, but that yeah. suits Hearn down to the ground because like all these big, dangerous, heavy-hitting cruiserweights are all tied up with one another, which means they can pull some. Yeah, there's a justification for not taking on one of the top ones immediately. But he's got to fight what's his name, the champion recess. Is it Grigori Droz? Uh, Droz, yeah. So he has to fight him this year, and Eddie Hearn's trying to swerve that to say, can we have, can we have a voluntary, and then can we have Hay in February as another voluntary. And then I think it'll be a test of whether the WBC really do take the sport seriously if they stick to their guns and say, no, you have to fight the champion recess. Well, hold on, I don't understand. With this whole um, David Hay thing, what, like, if he was to ask to get permission to fight David Hay, what, what universe <laughs> does this happen? Like, in what, in what weight does it, I don't understand. Like, when, when is that ever, I thought that was just a load of shit coming out of Bellew's mouth and then, and then David Hay going, well, I'll take you on if you want, but you're going to get battered because you'll never get up to heavyweight, etc., etc. Basically, it's not going to happen. Shut your mouth. There's how, money. How would it ever happen? There's money, money involved. Um, you know, it's a, it's a big domestic fight in the eyes of Sky. Like, I don't, as a boxing purist, I don't necessarily, I do want to see it because I want to see Bellew get smashed to pieces. But as a, you know, as a purist, it's not a, a great fight by any means. Bell, you would have to move up into. There's no way Hay comes down to cruiserweight from heavy. Bell, you spoke hypothetically about it being at a catchweight, which is fucking madness. Like you can't have a catchweight between cruiser and heavyweight. <laughs> you just go from cruiser to heavyweight. So they might agree a weight, um, you know, that you can't exceed. But it probably will happen because there's so much potential money. Here. Yeah, Hayes going to be fighting Briggs in September, October, so it leaves him free in January potentially for a Bellew fight. <laughs> so we're we talking about by this time next year, or just around sort of like even sort of May, April. This by next time next year, Hay could have still fought absolutely no one that could possibly could on paper challenge him. Well, what was quite interesting, um, there was an Eddie Hearn interview with IFL TV. I don't know if uh, if anyone saw it, which. He was talking about David Hay. And like David Hay is self-managed, self-promoted. Um, and Eddie Hearn was talking in a sense of if... It was almost as if David Hay was one of his fighters. <laughs> so he was talking about... Um, and honestly, the way that he spoke about it, you would think it was his fight. He was saying maybe we could get Bellew in January, then Joshua in like June of next year. As if like that was one of his own fighters that he's planning a route for. Like I don't understand the relationship there at all. It's uh, um, there isn't one ultimately, but um, yeah, like he he could carry on this route of not fighting significant fights, taking on a cruiserweight that's coming up. <laughs> it's mad. It's a mad situation. Terry, Terry does the fight happen? Ah, uh, for the record, as everyone knows from social media, I am no longer allowed to comment on anything hay related, especially not his clothes. Yeah, so I can't I can't say too much. All I can say is he's ranked number three with the IBF. Which means he's a Pulev and a Parker fight away from fighting Joshua. He's put himself in a good position, having not really had to beat anybody. So you have to give him credit because clearly, you know, Ooh, careful, Terry. Being self managed, <laughs> being self managed and self promoted, he's managed to lobby the IBF. <laughs> what are you talking about? He's rubbish. <laughs> he ruins the sport. He's fighting bums and he's making me pay for it. <laughs> uh, to give I only went any... to see Joe Fournier. <laughs> to give some context to this, if one of our listeners doesn't like Hay and he's not quiet about it. 
<laughs> he likes to really rip into Terry. But he is well dressed, they tell. <laughs> and by the way, carry on ripping into Terry about it, man, because I find it fucking hilarious. Like, copy me into everything. I sit and amuse him. Nice. Um, no, so basically, when you're number three with the IBF, you can you know the IBF will, will order the fight yeah, at the some point. World, the third best in the world, right? I mean, you are... Well, no, 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 no. No, it's, it's... I think we discussed this last week about governing bodies. Essentially... <laughs> The rankings don't reflect ability and they don't reflect talent. What they reflect is what big fights can happen in what order. So Parker's worked his way up to being the mandatory. They've put Pulev in there because he beat Chisora, so I guess that has some meaning. And so they had the two free slots for ages and they've just thought, we'll move some guys up and we'll throw Hay into number three because it's better to have him in our stable. He brings money in. <laughs> I know you two discussed this last week, but I was listening to it. Um... I mean, essentially, uh, if you think of it, having the top four, so you've got the WBA, the WBC, the WBO, and the IBF. Like, given that each of them will rank their top 15 in each weight division, and they're very reticent to rank each other's fight. So if one is in one ranking, then they don't typically feature that heavily, unless it's like an undisputed, you know, they definitely have to be in there. Someone like um, uh, Golovkin, before we won the WBC title by default, uh, he was still ranked by the WBC despite not having the other belts. But you essentially have a top 60 at any weight division because each governing body has their own top 15. So like it it almost stretches it out to the point that you have a top 60 fighters at any one weight. So just because you're in the top 15 is almost reflective of the fact that you're in the top 60 in the world because you've been ranked... Take, for example, the Liam Smith recent title defence against whatever, Predrag, Radjoblibilich. Like, God alone knows how that geezer was ranked in the top 15. He wasn't ranked in the top 15 of any other governing body. Uh, and that happens all the time. You look amongst the top 15 rankings for one, they don't they don't line up. It's not like it's the same names but in a different order for another governing body. They can bring in other names, and so I say to an extent, as as Terry says, it's just it's an order of fights they want to happen. It's not a list of the best names in that division because, because it's about sanctioning fees. And if you're the IBF, you'd rather have revenue from Joshua Parker feels like a big fight. Then you'd rather have the revenue from Hay against Pulev, reasonably big fight. David will carry that in terms of a promotion, and then all of a sudden, boom, you have either hey parker for the right to fight joshua you have hey joshua all massive fights all massive sanctioning fees you, you really don't want joshua fighting to cam because that's not going to generate the revenue it's the exact same reason why the wbc still have joshua ranked so highly even though he'd never invoke he'd never invoke his right to fight deontay wilder because that would mean he had to take the 25 percent of the purse yeah makes no sense so these governing bodies are smart they just want they want people in their stable essentially that's what they want it's, it's a massive beauty parade these heavyweights all prove they can generate money and then you, you kind of rank them highly to say stick with us that's true um <clears throat> so the listener i was talking about was this uh, john at john mulal mulhol I've, I've tried before and that's johnny it. that's my johnny <laughs> so johnny. Give, him a, give him a shout out given that he's given us at least a laugh but um Johnny to go back onto the hay thing just briefly this is what Do I we have say. to <laughs> I'm not a massive fan of eh, hay eh, but, eh. <laughs> but what I would say is I would love to watch him against someone like against Chanyan fighters 
to see him get knocked out. A bit a bit like the way some people watched Mayweather. <laughs> you know, you either support him or you'd love to see him get beaten. That's kind of how I sort of watch it to some but, extent. But why do people want David Hay beaten? Because uh, he's gobshite. <laughs> <laughs> But and he loves, no, no, no. and he basks in the limelight like some, ah, oh, like I, I have more personal. I had the tickets for uh, the Tyson Fury fight where he pulled out and then pulled out again, um, like for that reason alone. Like I want him to get beaten. But I think we know why he pulled out. I don't know if we he didn't hurt his toe again, did he? No, I don't know if no, we he can, cut I, his iron sparring like three oh, days before yeah, the fight. One, yeah, Fuck yeah. off! No, no, I, I don't know if we can publicize, but they're off air. We'll discuss that on off air. <laughs> but, but, but. <laughs> Oh, that's gonna go nowhere. <laughs> yeah, but the legitimate reasons why why week. that didn't happen. Um, if you look at him now, if you look at David in the media now, he doesn't. He's he's not walking around with t-shirts of severed heads anymore. You know, they he he's done what most fighters do as they get older. I guess he's, he's just, evolved. He's, he's just become an elder statesman of the sport now. You know, <laughs> Ooh, John. He's calling him an elder statesman address as well now. There you go, John. Yeah. I have a few comments about that. <laughs> Okay, let's move on. Um, I Do we want need to, to touch on the rest of the the whole York Hall shenanigans? So that's set, what I was about yeah. to move on to. Yeah, cool. the old York Hall card. So, what have we got to say about it? A few step up fights. Daryl Williams got taken the distance for the first time in a while. Good to see. You know, John can pull me up for this as well. Big <laughs> Daryl Williams fan. He's a good personal friend of mine, and I'm intrigued to see who will call him out because. He's showing an engine now which suggests he can go the distance and he can keep the pace and intensity up. And no one's going to want to fight someone like that because he's horrible to fight against. He's a body puncher and he's horrible with it. But as super middleweight, you look and you go, who's out there who he should be scared of? I think I think he beats Rocky Fielding this time next year. Mine? Um, I... I... I watched some of it on Box Nation. Um, it clashed with the start of the Euros, so uh, so I ended up watching some of that, if I'm honest. But there were two things, I suppose, of note. Charlie Duffield took a loss, which, I mean, I've seen Charlie Duffield a few times. Um, he's a very good example of boxers that get placed in high positions because he has 200 people that come and watch him in a fight. Um, like that guy has been a loss waiting to happen now for uh, I mean since his debut almost. Who I don't know his background now. I think he came with quite a good pedigree into the pro version of sport. I don't know Terry if you know that much about him. He, he but, was good. Uh, in the, he was good in the amateurs. I'm yeah. not sure if he got into an ABA final. I have a sense that he did. I think he did. I, I think, think he boxed in the ABA finals. Maybe 2010. Guessing. Not sure. Yeah, he, he certainly had a pedigree coming into it. Yeah, but but he, he doesn't move his head. And I've sat at York Hall and watched him ringside a few times. And like he just comes forward in very linear. There's no lateral movement. It's all very linear. No head movement. Stiff in the upper body. And every time I've chatted to him after a fight, he acknowledges that as well. So, just a quick segue into one of my gripes. So you have you have the grey hair and tracksuit brigade, who I like to refer to a lot. And what they basically teach these fighters in the amateurs is: you hit, cover up. He hits, covers up. You hit, cover up. He hits, cover up. If we hit and cover up, we have no incentive to move our heads and we have no incentive to step to the side. So what ends up happening is these guys become pros. And because they're hand-fed journeymen who know their job is not to win, they carry on with the style. And I know people say, ah, you're so down on amateur boxing. I'm down on amateur boxing because we drift away from the, the origins of the sport. And the origins of the sport were to be 
slick and not get hit while still being able to punish your opponent. And no one really teaches that there's a handful of trainers in the UK right now who teach you those, those arts of being able to just step to the side, do some more work, roll under, do some more work. And what this is what you find. Like if, if half of our boxers weren't taking EPO and growth hormone, would they really be able to beat the Mexicans and Americans? Probably not. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, yeah, Charlie Duffield was, I say, to me, like I've seen him a few times and he's in enjoyable, exciting fights. And I hope by no means he calls it a day or anything because he's fun to watch. But he's been a loss waiting to happen for a few fights now. Um, the other thing, like on a general point about it, they had two shows at York Hall, one on the Thursday and one on the Friday, both promoted by Frank Warren. Uh, why were they not both on Box Nation? I don't understand this. Like you, the argument typically about they do a few shows at York Hall that they don't televise. Um, so Bradley Skeet defended his European title there a while back, and they didn't televise it live on Box Nation. Um, I don't understand normally the argument behind that is that the production costs are very high to put on a show all the tv cameras all the lighting all that stuff which i okay i understand if it's not a great show then you know i can understand that but if you've got one on the thursday and the friday like the thursday was more under the radar fighters and friday was the big event but you've got a fucking tv channel where you've got like plow out how many hours of tv boxing based tv throughout a week you've got a live show on the thursday in the same place as you're broadcasting one on the Friday, and you don't broadcast it. I, I, I don't know. No wonder Box Nation struggles for but, but subscribers. Isn't, but isn't it more the the Friday is people who who are draw. So Macronelli's a draw. He will bring a certain number of. It people. wasn't to be fair when you yeah. saw the state of the crowd come that fight. It was, it was Where, quiet. Whereas on Thursday, I think you probably want your ticket sellers. So you do. I. I'd rather have to pay 35 quid to watch Danny Carr, Daryl Williams, than go, actually, yeah, I've got the option of Box Nation. It's been a long day at work. I'll just slot that on there. Yeah. So it's a tough balancing act, but I would like to have seen both, at least recorded and shown at a, as a delayed broadcast. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Show it two hours, you know, show it, as you say, an hour after it's happened. But what's the point in having a boxing channel? <laughs> I completely understand the production cost argument for one-off shows, but when you've got two in two nights and you only show one of them, mental madness and yet seems to make Frank Warren seems to make such great business decisions when he can't sell out massive halls yeah. with you know with other fights with actual rec- like really big names um, the, the guy the guy's on the slide in a way that's and unbelievable he seems to have been for a while though like it doesn't seem to like there's a for all his downsides Eddie Hearn just seems to bring like a freshness to the sport that Frank Warren seems to be, I find at least, like struggling to com- compete with. Fra- Frank Frank's that sort of guy who's going to be wrong but be strong with it. So <laughs> he's passionately wrong. Th- there's a time when having a boxing only TV station probably made sense when you're looking at the numbers Mayweather Pacquiao twenty four seven was doing. And you're looking like, if we could sell that here, if we could have that kind of content on a regular basis, the fans will want to watch it. In the interim, YouTube's gone crazy, streaming's gone crazy. You do not need a boxing-based channel, which leaves Frank in a really, really bad position. Do you cut your losses, admit Box Nation's a flop, go to ITV and say, can I just buy massive chunks of ITV4, which I'm sure wouldn't cost that much? Or do you just sit there and go, I want to make this thing work, even though everything is telling you it's not going to work. He seems like he's the the captain of the Titanic, isn't he? Like, everybody else is fucking pointing out this massive iceberg ahead. 
and he's still having a bit of a laugh, cracking on. <laughs> Which is actually exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, no, I was, I was there. I was there, mate. I was one of the few that swam for safety. <laughs> uh, okay. But, so, yeah, can I just no, like, on that note, because the obvious answer to an extent, I say obvious, one of the obvious uh, issues would be perhaps age. Like, I'm not being ageist here, but Frank Warren is to um, Box Nation and to Queensbury what, say, Barry Hearn is to Matchroom. And so you don't really see Barry Hearn, you see Eddie Hearn. And so a lot of people probably wonder, like, why... I mean, there's George and Francis Warren, who are the two sons of Frank, that you see occasionally. Um, and so Francis Warren was on after Anthony Yard, I think, uh, doing the interview. Um, and so it may well be that some people think, well, you know, Francis Warren would be a more natural fit to come out and try and revolutionise what they do and bring it... As you say about the freshness for Eddie Hearn, could Francis Warren bring that? No, he's a bit of a dick. So, like, <laughs> the times that I've ever seen him, heard from him, he, he just comes across as a real... And, like, Hearn is a smarmy... Bag. Yeah, yeah, Hearn is a smarmy salesman, but Francis Warren is, like, the smarmy salesman who chat your wife up whilst you're, like, going to go and try and test drive a car. You I need come to back. go to the toilet, but I'm not sure I want to leave with this seedy vacuum salesman. Yeah, like, if you went and test drive a car, like, he'd be trying to get his hand into your wife's knickers by the time you get back. I'd put money on it. Money on it. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, I wonder if you were shocked of that face then or thinking of other ways to describe how seedy Francis uh, Warren is. Frank Warren's like a lot of the coaches you see on the amateur circuit. Um, they have a playbook from like 1984 and it worked in 1984. Yeah. It might have even worked as far as 1997. But they refuse to change because that's how they've always done it. So what you end up with is a situation where everything's telling you the world's moving in direction X. And you're saying, no, I've been doing this before. I know what I'm doing. And so he's getting smashed. I think, and I'm going to be sensitive in how I say this. His promotional company suffered greatly from the loss of Dean Powell. And, and we don't often discuss that. But Dean Powell was the silent power behind the throne in Frank Warren's organization. So he he had that that nous to be able to tell you which way the wind was blowing, be it for a fighter's career or just where the sport was going. He had his finger on the pulse and, you know, it was a big loss. I don't quite think Frank's replaced that. And in it, almost Frank's decided to take more of the burden on himself, but he's not the right person to do it. Let's not forget that being at the top of any sport in any position for two, three decades takes, you know, it takes a lot. I mean, you Arsene Wenger, for, for example, that's what it reminds me of. He was revolutionary in the sport, and now he's sort of, he's not drifted beyond beyond anything, but he's sort of same as Frank Warren, in a sense, bobbling around but not hitting the top. But, I mean, I think, um, to back up what Terry was saying there, about <laughs> there was an interview uh, with Frank Warren, again on IFL the other week, and he was talking about the Crawler-Flanagan fight and the possibility of making it, and he was... You have to admire Frank Warren for his honesty and like passion that he still has for it after all the years, as Andy says, about him being in it. But he was talking about, oh, you know, get rid of all the bollocks, get rid of the politics, get rid of this, get rid of that. He was saying, you know, I've made big fights for years. And he's, <laughs> he then goes back to like, I was making big fights for Steve Collins, for Nigel Benn. It's like, yeah, this is exactly the problem. You're still referring to the big fights you made in the 90s. <laughs> like, you don't have anything to back up your argument from the last decade and a half <laughs> it's crazy now I've waited and now I'm bringing the children of Eubank 
<laughs> ben through. He's even missed them. Yeah. <laughs> He's even missed them. So, Apart yeah. from Nathaniel Wilson, who's Chris Eubanks' illegitimate son. Which is kind of a metaphor for it all. He, he <laughs> just kind of just couldn't get the right one. <laughs> the son not even Eubank wanted. <laughs> Eubanks <laughs> mugged him off. <laughs> Eubanks mugged his own son off to Warren. <laughs> Dark Destroyer's done it. <laughs> anyway, we need to get back on point. <laughs> um, <laughs> we got anything else to add? We can't add um, to that. Um, but generally, your whole show, good for Daryl Williams, <laughs> good for, for young Danny Carr, who I think is 5-0. and oh. Good young kid, boxed out the Fisher, did well. I remember watching him spar as a young man against Thomas Osomba whatever happened to him you know that's probably a discussion for another time but you know kid looked talented then he's turned over he's five and oh he brings that whole bermondsey millwall southeast london kind of demographic with him which is always good um his dad paul good guy as well decorated amateur you know nice man on the circuit so it looks like between frank warren and mickey helliot they're definitely getting the right london people involved Let's just see where that goes. But I would really like to see Anthony Yard tested coming going forward now. I think he's proven that there aren't many journeymen that can live with him. You know, I'd probably stick him in with a Hosea Burton now. Um, even if he didn't win, it'll be sufficiently competitive to announce him, you know, to the world at one seven five. Let's see if Frank Warren can make the fight happen. He did in nineteen ninety two. Whatever he did in nineteen ninety two, he can do today. The Frank way. Okay, let's move on to any other news from the world of boxing over the last weekend. Weekend? Is that what we're allowed? You're not giving me the other five days. Ah, <sighs> oh, if you must. All right. Uh, so, yeah, we've had um, Josh Warrington, who's... Um, he's been banging on about wanting a fight with Lee Selby for however long, and Hearn's talked about doing it up at Ellen Road because Warrington's a big ticket seller up in Leeds. There's a, a lot of following for him. And then he came. He was offered it by Jamie Sanagar. Uh, and his, I think there were negotiations going on. Um, Jamie Sanagar managing Lee Selby, and uh, Warrington came out, and the, like the the Selby team, Sanagar and Co came out and kind of laughed at him for saying no, they couldn't do anything uh, August or before because of the fact that Warrington was getting married. Uh, I think in mid to late August, sometime, uh, or maybe even September. But basically, like can't do anything before that because he's getting married. His concentration will be elsewhere like a i got married a couple of years back and i did fuck all for it because my wife did everything so like if his concentration is on that he's got the wrong fucking relationship going on um (laughs) the most subjective point ever no no i'm sticking by it (laughs) men should not be involved in the arrangements of a marriage um (laughs) and b He's now signed up to fight on July 31st against someone who's yet to be announced. Um, but you weren't in a position where you could fight Lee Selby, but you're now going to fight somebody, whoever, I don't know who they're going to bring over for him. But what a fucking bottle job. That's an absolute duck. He, look, he needed 15 grand extra for the wedding. <laughs> Didn't want to take a big risk, but need, needed that little extra just to make sure. He's got the limos to pay off, isn't he? The photographers, so- the hooligans to police the event, you know. <laughs> Keep it all within all Leeds. that Leeds crowd. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah, like I just wanted to touch on it that that's an absolute bottle job, like a massive duck. And I hope 
I hope Selby never offers him that fight again. But but I'd also pull Selby's team up for this. Number one, who the hell wants to fight July thirtieth? Like I, I just think boxing wise, it's it's a bad time because most fans have paid for the family to go off to Benidorm, Tenerife, wherever it is. So no one's really flush with cash. Um, I think the fight should happen. That's a fight you'd want to see in October, November. When, 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 you know, well, probably more October. Yeah, but I think the idea was it was Ellen Road. So, like, they would try and fit it in out before the football season started. Uh, was the reasoning for it. But either way, I hope they never offer it to Warrington again. And I hope he fucking rots. No. <laughs> That's a bit harsh. No, it's not. <laughs> but Warrington, Warrington to me is a manufactured fighter in the first place. Yep. So if you look at Josh Warrington's career, he gets fed the right sort of opponents to look interesting against and to keep the Leeds fans happy, to so keep filling that first direct arena. Um, the minute you step him up and he faces a real test, he's probably going to get found out badly, and then that will be the end of the Leeds boxing miracle. He but- gets fed opponents that can't punch, like ones that haven't got knockout power, because he doesn't have knockout power. What he has is an exceptional work rate. Um, and where does that come from? Well, I, I, I would, I would hasten to. Oh, don't please. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to comment, but he has, and he has all a... natural bread fighters who are purely organic. If Terry, we take right? it at face value and ignoring any <laughs> PED allegations, etc., like he has that work rate, and he has, you know, maybe he's juicing better than every other fighter. I don't know, but. He can't punch. Like he, he has no knockout ability. So don't put him in with anyone that he's a massive. He's got some okay, reasonable wins on his record. Um, but who was the guy that Selby fought last? Eric Hunter um, on the undercard of the Joshua fight. They keep regurgitating old Selby opponents for Warrington, but I bet you they don't bring Eric Hunter over because he flattened Selby in the second round. Was it? Yeah. We put him on his ass, and like they won't be bringing him over for Warrington. You can mark me. If I'm wrong, then fair enough, but I'd no, be shocked. It, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be someone who's seen better days. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it'll be embarrassing. That, that, that's what it will be. It'll be embarrassing, and then we'll be told that the undercard sells the event. And if There's some decent names on that undercard. There's like Tommy Martin, Dillian White. Um, there are a few other. Off but Dillian's in remember. a tune-up. We already know that will be a tune-up for Dillian, especially seeing as the 25th looks like it's going to be a bust for him anyway. Yeah. So there's, there's going to be no fight that means anything in the big scheme of things. It no, will just be guys out for a payday. In the left-hand bracket of the uh, of the lineup, there's some decent names, but the away bracket of the lineup will no doubt be shocking. Call and, it already. And like I say to the fans, you allow yourself to get conned by this nonsense. Don't. And if you don't like what you see on the right-hand side of this, don't watch it. Yeah. Don't pay for it. Cancel your Sky. Like, just stream it. That's what I do. Yeah. Cancel Amazon, stream everything. Fi- Amazon Fire Stick. Go yep. and buy one. Thirty four ninety nine. I will hack it for you for a tenner. Yeah, I did we'll, Andy's. We'll put, we'll, we'll put Cody on there. You get the fight to <laughs> HD. That. There you go. <laughs> That's all I do. Or get an Android tablet because you can get Cody on there and you can stream all the stuff anyway. But look, don't pay for fights you don't want to pay for. You don't pay for albums you don't want to pay for anymore. It's 2016. All right, now that we've finished doing Martin and Terry's advert for hacking and stuff like that. Um... Free enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the other bit from this week was um, the British board send out their uh, their notifications. They do it once a month, so it tells you. It's worth a read. Go and have a look. It's on their website. It tells you um, who's basically each British and English title holder, um, who their next fight will be against and who's fighting the Eliminators to get into a place to fight for those titles. 
So it's normally quite interesting reading that you find out kind of, you can see, if you do a little prediction in your head, you can see who's going to be fighting for British title two or three fights down the line because they have eliminators and final eliminators and then title shots. Um, so you can start to build up a picture of who is being manipulated into a position to fight for these titles. Uh, or you get them completely out of left field, like Tommy Coyle, who's moving up from lightweight where he's achieved very little. I think, is that fair enough? Nothing. <clears throat> Nothing, apart from getting smashed by Luke Campbell. That's his best achievement at lightweight. And um, se- selling toys in Hull Market with Luke Campbell before Luke Campbell said, I'm actually better than you after the Olympics. Yep. Um, yeah, that's what he's best known for, is having a rivalry with Luke Campbell that ended up with him just getting splattered. Very one-sided rivalry. Yeah. and so he goes from that, where he's come back and fought once up in Liverpool or Manchester, was I think Manchester on the Crawler undercard. And now he's moving up to light welterweight. And his first fight at light welterweight, he's fighting for the British title. So you've got people in there, like John Wayne Hibbert. Um, you've got numerous names in there. Fucking Jack Cattrall. Jack Cattrall ought to be in line for that. Um, but instead, you get Tommy Coyle, who's achieved nothing at lightweight, gets his first fight at light welterweight, and he's moved straight into the British title fight against Tyrone Nurse. It's sickening. Like... <laughs> There are lads that have been grafting in that weight division that deserve a title shot far more than he does. But I guarantee you, if Tommy Coyle was a fighter who was only fighting on, say, Steve Wood shows up in the Northwest rather than on matchroom shows, there is not a hope in hell he would have got that shot on his first fight up at Light Welter. It's sad because it sends the wrong message to a guy like Jack Cattrall, who, I might be wrong, has sparred both Mayweather and Canelo. He sparred, I interviewed him actually, uh, he sparred Mayweather in the build-up for the Pacquiao fight. He was brought yeah. over specially for it. Yeah, and I know he did work with Canelo as well when he was out there. Yeah. So, here's a guy who's trying to take ownership of his career, very much off the radar, super talented, deserves that shot on a decent platform. I have no issue with Tyrone Nurse fighting for the British... Super talented kid, looks good, looks the part. But Tommy Coyle's a man on the way down. And we need to stop trying to resurrect these fighters. Um, We're doing it with Ricky Burns. You know, we do it with guys like Derry Matthews. We need to stop resurrecting these guys, you know. Once once you're on the way down, we should let you fall gently and let these young guys like your Hara Davises, you know, let these young guys start to come through, your Georgie Jups. Let these youngsters come through and, you know, let them build a name for themselves. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Just like Shannon Briggs, that young upcoming fighter. David Hay. (laughs) David (laughs) Hay, indeed. Uh, Just to go on to that, you've spoken a couple of times, Terry, about uh, getting in touch with the fans when when it comes to the Hay Briggs. So, yeah, going on to what uh, we were were speaking about earlier with these two, I'll tell you, some of the stuff that they come out with that I have to... I mean, you you will hear as the listener (laughs) the stuff that gets left in the podcast. Trust me, the stuff I have to take out of the podcast is liable. So if we do go down, um, we get the date for the... Uh, Shannon Briggs, hey stuff. We come, we go down there. Come meet us. Uh, say, what did you say it was going to be? All by one. It's right by the entrance. You walk in, yeah. you do a left, and it's just there. Terry's talked it into existence. That's what we'll end up doing. It's, it's got a nice outside bit, so you know you'll see everyone. Just sit down because what happens? Everyone comes in groups of three and four, and you're like, do you know what? I really wish there was a bigger group here. We could have a chat, mingle, go and watch the fight, go and have a good time. You know, let's do these things properly. So then we can do the slander face to face. I mean, it's. 
Yeah. You can't edit out what we say first. Yeah. <laughs> I just have to hold like big white cards across your mouths and scream beeps over what you say. <laughs> just get that full that full podcast experience. John, 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 by all means, come down and, you know, oh, yeah. you can meet David and share views. I'm sure John sounds like a man who wants to pay £45 to come and watch David. <laughs> but yeah. he paid pay £45 to come and tell me how much he hates him, though. <laughs> It'd be nice of him to come down just from the irony of it. <laughs> we'll all chip in. We'll buy your ticket. 15 quid each. And when he bangs out Shannon Briggs, we can tell him how I'm great he is. <laughs> Speaking of big knockouts, Lomachenko. Go. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's an exceptional talent. He's now a two-weight world champion after beating Martinez last night. Um, that, that guy is something else. Just, uh, I can't justify with words. Look it up. Look up the knockout. It's It's a peach. It's one where... He hits a guy and then walks off like st- he doesn't walk off. He struts off, and like he knows at that point the fight's over. The refs there counting. Don't bother. Um, and it's a new side of Lomachenko. We've seen the skillful amateur side. It's a guy who won two hundred and fifty amateur fights and lost one or something in his career. He's a, a double or triple Olympic gold medalist. Um, like he's exceptionally talented, exceptionally skilled. And now he's starting to add a viciousness. He's a two-weight world champion within nine professional fights, is it? Seven. Seven, sorry. I'm doing him a disservice. Seven fights. He fought for a world title in his second fight and lost. Um, and then he's gone on to win from there. It, like Honestly, he, his skill set is just second to none. I was blown away. There's, there's a... He's the sort of fighter I watch with the sound turned off. And the reason I do that is I don't want to be influenced by what the crowd are doing. And you'll watch him. And it's the small things that he'll do where he'll step out to the right being a southpaw. He'll dig a left to the body, which keeps you effectively pinned to exactly where you are. And then he'll fire these vicious right hands at you. Um, My suspicion is he's a right-handed southpaw, judging by the power he has in his lead hand. So when, when he detonates that right hand, and there were a few of them that he threw... And they were soul destroying because you could see, you see, I was gonna say, what's the surname? Is it? I was gonna say Marquez. It's not Martinez. Marquez. Yeah, Juan Juan Roman Martinez, whatever it is, just didn't have an answer to it. And it's a lonely place in the ring when you're against someone that good because this was meant to be a test. Let's not forget that this was meant to be a real legitimate test. So you watch him do that, and you say they have to do him and Rigondeaux one two six. There has to be a way to make that fight happen because who's there at 130? Nicholas Walters can do 126. So at 130, can you imagine him fighting Stephen Smith? I think that's a waste of time. <laughs> then you've got the American guys like like a Tevin yeah, Farmer. Pedraza. Yep. Javante Davis can probably make 130, but he's still raw and he really doesn't need that fight. But someone like a Tevin Farmer in the States would give him some degree of a test being a fellow Southpaw. Um, John's going to pull me up for being a Tevin Farmer fanboy as well. Um, He's the one you're answerable to now, ultimately. Yeah, judge, jury and executioner. But essentially, what, what what we're looking for with Lomachenko now is, okay, stop messing around. Let's make that Rigondeau fight It's got happen. to be that fight. I mean, there aren't that many money fights at those weight divisions, whereas those two, like, it's not going to be the huge revenue generated from a Mayweather-Pacquiao, don't get me wrong, but... In terms from a, I mean, just from a purist perspective, like that's boxing porn. That's that's yeah. something else. Give us some more on the American scene over the week. Let's start with Provotnikov versus John Molina. So Ruslan Provotnikov, most famous for the beating he gave Tim Bradley in the first two rounds, where 
and Tim Bradley admits to this day he doesn't remember where he was for the first half of that fight. Um, a guy seemingly half human, half polar bear from the wilds of Siberia. You know, we've discussed before before Terry's involvement in this podcast. It's like he is the most entertaining fighter to watch. If you don't care for skills, if you want to see. Like if you want to see what happened on the the uh, stadium between England and Russia fans, but in a boxing ring, that is Ruslan Provodnikov. Like the man defends shots with his face. He doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> doesn't feel him. Um. So he loses to Molina. Now Molina went into the fight being a heavy-handed puncher in his own right. So we thought this would be a slugfest. Um. I watched the fight and I watched it and I thought, you know. A lot of red flags in that fight. Number one, how the hell does John Molina, having watched a lot of his career, how does he throw 1,110 punches in a, in, a, in a fight? It's something like 50% more than he threw against Broner. He threw 643 jabs. So just to explain... Trained hard, Terry. Don't worry about it. Next! <sighs> just, just for a sense of perspective, just so people understand this. You know, I know there are people out there who train. Throw 50 jabs for every three-minute round 12 times. And you tell me how your left arm will feel. Your you, left shoulder. Yeah, the whole arm. You, you, <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you, I mean, everything from your neck to your knuckles will be finished. It's it's not human. It's not safe. And it worries me because we've no one's really outworked Provodnikov in terms of punch output. Who's, we haven't seen that. And Bradley's a, a high output puncher and he couldn't outwork Provodnikov. <laughs> so for this guy to come out of nowhere and start outworking Provodnikov, and this is a guy who couldn't significantly outwork Adrian Broner. Like, the fucking laziest fighter on the planet, Adrian Broner. And Molina couldn't outwork him, and yet has done a job on Provodnikov. And it's worrying for the sport, because, you know, people say, oh, you know, he needs to fail a test. And I keep saying, you know, absence of proof is not proof of absence. Um, I'm sure that's what George W. Bush once said. But it's true. Well, that's a great... Uh... <laughs> right. but, but he was right. And, 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 you know, just because you pass a test, it doesn't mean you're not putting stuff in your system. Um, I'm slightly worried by that. I wouldn't be surprised if Vada involves that something comes out of this fight. But congratulations to Melina for winning. Um, as for Provodnikov, I think he said he's had enough now. So I th- I'd expect Provodnikov to retire. You're going to give his face a rest. Which is a shame because he was one of those guys that fight fans love because you know exactly what you're getting. You know, he'll po- he will pose exactly the same problem round after round and it's up to the opponent to deal with that. And if you don't, you're going to get badly hurt. Yeah. Uh, and what about Andrade? I didn't see the Andrade fight. But... Um, Demetrius Andrade, as he likes to call himself. Um, I, so I know him having spent time with him in Gleason's years ago when, you know, he was up and coming. I just think he's something else. Um, I remember the beating he gave Brian Rose. Um, that was soul destroying. But that was too much of a one-sided affair. Like Rose should never have been in there in a month of Sundays. It was, it was great work by his promotional team to get him that shot. Yeah, and he took an absolute hiding. But then Andrade had promotional issues, injury issues. He's been relatively inactive, so he comes back against. I want to say Willie Nelson. I nearly said Willie Monroe Jr who also fought over the weekend against John Thompson. So he fights the guy. The guy looks like Paul Williams. So his opponent essentially looks like Paul Williams. Has he gone up to middleweight now, Andrade? No, this was at 154. So he he fights the guy and just administers a clinic. I think he dropped him three or four times in the fight, stopped him in the last round. Looked scary. You know, the, the power that comes off his right hook 
is something else. You look at him and go, if all of that can move up to 160, you wouldn't mind seeing him take on the likes of Eubank Jr., Billy Joe Saunders, and dare I say it, Triple G. I know people, you know, he might just be the person who could give Triple G those problems because the straight left that he throws is soul-destroying. That's the expression for it. If he doesn't, then there's always a Canelo fight if he wants to hang around at 155. I don't think Canelo would take that fight. I think he's probably looking, in the short term, he's looking at any one of the two Charlos, Trout or Lara, if Lara doesn't go to 160. Yeah, or Liam Smith. (laughs) (laughs) No chance. Fantastic talent, though. So if anyone can get hold of Demetrius Andrade footage, watch it. If you're a young fighter and you need to learn how to throw a backhand, just watch how he throws it. Um, disguises it beautifully, and when it goes, it goes quickly. I'm trying to think. Quick roundup of what else was happening. Willie Monroe Jr., who was splattered by Golovkin on the comeback trail against, I want to say, John Thompson. Probably John Thomas. But that's the one that uh, Liam Smith beat for the vacant title, wasn't it? Yeah. So he, so you know, so he's easing his way back. I don't think William Monroe Jr. is that bad a fighter. You know, you thought you lost to Golovkin. I think he's still a factor. Would like to see him against a Eubank Jr., for example. It would be a good benchmark fight before you go on to start calling out Golovkin. Yep. Right. <clears throat> I want to move on to listeners' questions, unless you've got anything else to add from the last week. Bring on the questions. Okay. Well, I, uh, I've got the first one is from Terry. Go on, say that for me. Super duper sassy smiley serendipitous Sam Khan. Right, all right. There's your ringtone. Yeah, there you go. So, right, I'll edit that and turn that into a ringtone. (laughs) Right, okay. You know, that was straight off the top. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's, that's what you're best at doing, isn't it? We're going to go, forgetting the Bellew Hey Brouhaha, who should Bellew fight next if you could choose for him? So I think I'd, I'd like you to both choose here. Um, obviously, one of you gets the advantage of going first. So whoever goes first, the other one has to then think. Wait, so let me read, because the semantics of this is quite important. Who should Bellew fight next if you could choose? So if I could choose, it's going to be those fucking 10,000 Russians that walked all over the England fans <laughs> last night. That's who I want Tony Bellew to fight next. Hey, hey, next, hey, you're hey, going. Hey. I'll you're tell going. you what, mate. I tell you what, mate. Ten thousand Russians <laughs> could do nothing to me. Bring them to Goodison Park. Maybe at light heavyweight. No one can beat me at Goodison. When yeah, I, they can. Hey, bring them over. When I, when fuck you up, drained. and then you can fuck off. When right, I, Terry, your answer on that. When I was weight drained, I was I was nervous. <laughs> But at cruiserweight, my natural weight, I've been this weight my whole life. I was born at cruiserweight. Any Russian will get what Makabu got. <laughs> Anyone in the world will get what Makabu got. Even David Hay. Even though really I'm a fan of his, because I wanted to be Andy, what's his answer? <laughs> I don't know, he's starting to go Lily Savage. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you going for, Terry? Paul Brady. Um, Honest answer, Ola Falabi. And there's a reason for that. Number one, Ola Falabi, for what he's done for British boxing abroad, deserves a domestic fight on a big platform. I know he said he's retired, but he can still get in shape for Tony Bellew. He's he's a big enough hitter that it will be interesting. 
Um, Size-wise, they match up pretty well. I think Bellew will want a domestic fight that has meaning in the UK uh, before he goes abroad. So just to cement his earning power. So I think that's a good fight for him. And, you know, I speak because I've seen the struggles that Ola's gone through before the Macronelli fight and after the Macronelli fight. So I'd like to see him fight Ola Falabi. I think that would be a good fight. If that fight couldn't be made, then he'd probably fight over McKenzie. That, unfortunately, is the end of the listener's question part. And that is down to you, dear listener. Um, Not you, Sam Khan. Yeah, yeah. well done, Sam. You are the... Well, you're the nerd that's getting beaten up in the corner because you asked so many questions. <laughs> but what, what you're a teacher's what, pair. What about point. John, though? All tweets and no questions. Yeah, I mean, he's like the school... He's like the one of those kids in the corner of like the smelly jacket who just is a troublemaker. It's <laughs> <laughs> just... <laughs> just constant troublemaker getting stuck outside looking through the window asking to borrow a pound off everyone just sniping off at everyone <laughs> but the rest of you go on John start asking questions so last week we spoke about Muhammad Ali for obvious reasons but that kind of got us uh, that kind of got us talking and Terry wanted to speak about another legend of the boxing world in the form of George Foreman now we had, I had a look at um, his exploits over the last couple of days doing a bit of homework which might not tell you from my school days, pretty rare. I think not just rare, mate. It's probably classed <laughs> as, as the sixth piece I've ever done. So a few things surprised me, Terry. One being that he's probably made more than Mayweather through grills. He's got to be close to that. He's probably close. I don't know if he still gets residual. So the, the, the so it's interesting. The deal he had with the company that made the grill was he gets a cut of the profit of every grill sold. Yeah, I heard that. Wasn't it like 40% of every grill? Yes, but there was also the licensing fee for his name. (laughs) So so he got paid twice. He got paid for having his name on the grill. Then he got paid for actually promoting the grills themselves. So if you then calculate how many of these grills have been sold, they say he's made 200 million, but you can probably imagine it's a fair bit more than that. And I put George Foreman in that bracket that I put Matthew Macklin in. Boxers who've walked out of the sport in exactly the right way. So you look at George Foreman now, he's articulate, he's respected, he's got good energy in the sport, and he never has to worry about money again. And that's how you want all boxers to finish their career. He never has to buy a Christmas present again either. (laughs) Just wrap up a grill, isn't it? (laughs) Got one of these last year, George, you prick. I I still don't use them. No. How many houses? Does he get the residual income from the car boot sales sales of George Foreman grills? Because there must be hundreds every I'm Sunday morning. I've got one morning. my dad gave me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those things are pointless. It, but... it, it was good until you realised it was the fat that added to the taste of the meat. <laughs> Slash, it was an absolute bitch to clean. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get grill. the cleaning? The cleaning utensil? Oh, no. Oh. Are we talking about his boxing career? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Go out and buy a grill today. <laughs> No, but, but but I think it's one of the things, and it was a discussion started by a friend of mine prior to Muhammad Ali dying, and we were having quite an intense discussion about who the top five heavyweights of all this time This doesn't were. bode well for Foreman, if you were discussing this prior to Ali dying. and now, No, no, well... And he's gone. Well, you know, he's now number one on the list. Um, so it was interesting, because his view was, you go Ali Tyson, and then you go Frazier. Which made no sense to me because I genuinely believe George Foreman is the second greatest heavyweight to have boxed. Tyson's not even top five for me. Nowhere near. And and what 
the reason I say that is you have to understand it in a world where people talk about Anthony Joshua coming from nowhere to win the Olympic gold. George Foreman had 26 amateur fights before he won Olympic gold, which is nothing really. If you, if you think about how often the British amateurs were fighting in the 60s, 26 is probably a season's worth of work for some of these guys. So it was absolutely nothing. He goes from that to then winning a world title within four years. Bear in mind, we're talking, you know, in an Anthony Joshua era. So he wins the title in about four, within four years of turning pro. What was it? January 22nd, 1973, where he just basically takes Joe Frazier apart. This is the same Joe Frazier that went the distance with Muhammad Ali and gave him all kinds of hell. Um, his next fight didn't take an easy voluntary defense. Next fight, Ken Norton. Splattered him absolutely everywhere. You know, had a couple of relatively soft defenses while they built up the Ali fight. Fights Ali, loses. But I'm quite happy in arguing that had there been a rematch, I think Foreman would have probably bludgeoned Ali to pieces. You know, I think Ali was smart enough never to give him a rematch. And if we if we look at what happened after that, you know, I think Foreman's heart was broken, A, by the defeat, and B, by his inability to avenge that loss. Because I, I do think he had the tools to take out Ali had he paced himself through that fight. So you have a guy... He lost that, again, though, reasonably soon after that, did he not? No, he had a comeback, and he lost to Jimmy Young. And losing to Jimmy Young on a comeback fight is no is no disgrace. It would be the equivalent of... what's a modern? Who's a modern equivalent? It, it would be like... Tony Thompson. No, nah, probably Luis Ortiz, to be honest with you. Yeah? Yeah, Jimmy Young was a good technician, gave people... You know, he beat Ron Lyle. He beat those sorts of big, bruising characters. So, Jimmy Young was good. You think, with you know, John complains about the fighters David Hay has. So, you imagine on a comeback trail, you fight Jimmy Young, a live contender, a guy who thinks he should be world champion. And then you, you have the mammoth fight with Ron Lyle. You take him out quicker than Ali took him out. And at this point, you're saying, Ali should fight me. Ali still refuses to fight the man. So he's disillusioned by the sport, becomes a minister, comes back in 1987 for one reason only, to fight Mike Tyson. You know, and was brazen in admitting that. He said, I'm here to fight Mike Tyson. And considering Mike Tyson was beating up on Larry Holmes, who is the same age as George Foreman, which people forget. You know, you know Tyson didn't want that fight. Holyfield still classes... George Foreman is the hardest punch he's ever faced. And this is a man in his early 40s. I think he was 42 when he fought Evander Holyfield for the undisputed heavyweight title. And then, you know, then you have the in 1994, knocks out Michael Moore, becomes a world champion at 46, whatever it was. Oldest mm, by, by one world heavyweight champion? No, not heavyweight champion. World champion, I think. Probably after Hopkins. Yeah, I think it was Ben Hopkins was the... So, so, so you look at this guy's career and you say, number one, you were the most relevant factor in the greatest era for heavyweights. And, you know, because you lost to Ali, people don't give you the credit you deserve. You know, I always hear people talking about Larry Holmes. Like Larry Holmes is exactly the same age as George Foreman. Well, not to the day, but born in the same year. And I, I for one, know that Foreman would have battered Holmes from pillar to post. Holmes didn't want the fight. Foreman wanted the fight. Holmes didn't want the fight. And I think we should all go back and revisit George Foreman because he wasn't just a puncher. He was an incredibly smart boxer who knew how to put his jab 
bang in your face, open up the guard so he could come around the side or come up the middle. You know, the like I say, just watch the beating he gave a prime Joe Frazier in 1973 and tell me, tell me there's a heavyweight more dominant than that. Yeah, you see, the funny thing, I've watched that fight. Um, it lasts like two rounds, right? It puts six, Joe Frazier down six, six times. times. Yeah, uh, The sixth time, he actually knocks him off his feet. And you wouldn't, now I say that, you, you wouldn't believe it, but it, it does happen. He, he actually, both his feet come off the ground as before he hits the canvas. Um, but what I found, what struck me was, when I watched the Rumble in the Jungle, um, of course you've got the rope-a-dope, but Ali would would tuck up and defend himself whilst George Foreman was coming in. But as soon as he got too close, Ali would grab him and hold on to him. In the Frasier fight, what you notice is that Foreman, as soon as he comes close, he pushes him away. He's constantly pushing him away, pushing him away, pushing him so that he can then keep striking him. And what I felt was, I don't know if it's, you know, they might not even be related, but I felt like... If it if those were consecutive fights, you'd almost think that he'd learn. Don't let him get too close because if they wrap you up, you know it's going to tie you out more. And he just kept striking Frazier. Now I don't know if the two are linked, but that's certainly what came up in my mind. Um, so look at look at Frazier. Frazier for any fighter, Frazier's scary. He's a come forward guy. He likes to stay low in the crouch and he likes to keep the pressure on you. Ali will give you a bit of distance, probably not hitting you as hard but will irritate you with a peppering jab and that spearing right hand. So Foreman was probably okay in the rumble in the jungle saying, actually, do you know what? I can take the best he has to give me. I'm going to blast him out of there in four or five rounds. It's it's just a matter of when. It was like almost like the Canelo Khan fight. I'm going to catch you no, eventually okay, yeah. and you're going to fall over. So it's, it's, it's a different mindset. I think, had, like I said, had there been a rematch and Foreman went, actually, do you know what? I can't let this guy get in. Because I think we discussed this last week. The clever things that Ali was doing, putting his hand on Foreman's, you know, yeah. on his right hands. Why? Because you can feel when that hand's moving so you know what's coming next. Being able to grab him by the back of the neck, pull him in, knowing that Foreman couldn't move and it would tire him out trying to deal with that. All these small things you do to frustrate a fighter. Um, you know, you have to give Ali credit for that. But then let's not ignore what Foreman was able to do. Like he battered, you know, have you seen the the way he drops Ken Norton twice? N- Norton hits the ropes, bounces back up, gets hit, bounces off the other rope and gets hit again. And the ref has to stop it. And, you know, Ken Norton is a guy that went the distance, was it three times with Ali or twice? And well, he, beat, he beat Ali yeah, once, didn't he? And then, you know, they had a controversial decision as well. So here you have a man who doesn't get his place in history because we talk about the Tysons and we talk about the Listons and we talk about the Joe Lewises and... To be honest, George Foreman would have smashed holes in all of them. You know, revisit the revisit the Frazier fight. He didn't even look like he was trying. That's the scary thing. Yeah, and he continued that obviously he'd spent ten years out of sport. <laughs> but 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 my question then goes back to and this is where it led me to, and I was asking myself, why don't we produce fighters like that anymore? We don't produce those sorts of tough, naturally strong vicious punches if you look at our boxing scene everyone's quite athletic and technical and they're very few nasty people and it goes back to if you look at the era guys like joe frazier came up in where they were working in cotton fields and they were doing all these sorts of things and now you look at the the young black kids in the inner cities they don't have to do that anymore you look at the kids in the british inner cities you know, the welfare state means you don't have to go out there and work at 14 anymore. You're not on the docks. You're not being a mechanic. 
you know, you're, you're working on your craft, which is good, but you're not toughening up. So what ends up happening is you get guys who are good boxers, but not necessarily tough. And contrast that with what's happening in Eastern Europe where you have people growing up in true poverty. You've got your Kovalevs, you've got your Golovkins growing up in true poverty where it is subsistence living. You are working the land and you are getting that strength. And all of a sudden you can understand why the balance of power in boxing is moving from West to East because, you know, they have, the Americans call it GPP, general physical preparation. And it's the things you do as a kid that strengthen your muscles, strengthen your tendons, strengthen your bones so when puberty kick sorry when puberty kicks in you have a head start in everyone else and i think that's what george foreman had that's what um joe frazier had that's what guys like ernie shavers had because these were naturally big men because they'd come from that sort of environment of just that hard work which prepared them for a tough life in the ring it's an interesting theory i i, I think I, I, to be plays out devil's advocate with that I I can accept that, but that is almost on par with the argument that football struggles because we don't have kids playing football in the street anymore, like in the old days. And nowadays they're all you know they're not allowed to play ball outside, and so the better players come from South America because they're allowed to play football in the street. And I think ultimately what you've got to do is just ad- adapt and adapt. Like we we I mean Britain are producing good boxers now. They're not maybe in the same the same fashion as the old old guard but they're still producing successful fighters so does it matter that they're not the same but but it does because you look at a guy like Kovalev and you say who the hell's going to beat Kovalev maybe Ward but Ward's not relying on being tougher than Kovalev he's relying on being more skillful than Kovalev you know you're looking at Tony Bell you're fighting a cruiserweight and you've got to go and fight these Eastern Europeans who who genuinely came from adject poverty and you know had to had to scratch a living so I think there are two elements to it there's the physical part of, you know, that physical labor prepares you. But there's also the psychological element of coming from a genuine struggle. So you can always, and just to bring up my Matt Macklin point, you know, when, you, when you're privately educated and you have a law degree and you have horizons far broader than someone like a Jamie Moore, it's then very hard when you end up in deep water to find that, that place of hardship that someone like a Jamie Moore can. And, you know, because you're like, well, even if I can't box, I can do something with my life. But Jamie Moore's fighting for his career. So you have that thing where Matt Macklin never seemed to be able to find that dark space within him. I don't know. That's Sergio Martinez's fight. He, uh, he dug deep there. But he didn't win, though. He didn't. He wasn't as good as Martinez. But could he dig deep when he needed to? Yeah, he could dig deep. He couldn't win. He wasn't good enough. But he should not have been losing to guys like Jamie Moore. No, no, I agree. But like to say that he couldn't dig deep. No, no, no. So, but I mean, it's, 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 it's finding that dark place. So, like, I look at, I look at some of the fighters who come up now. Even like a Daryl Williams, you can spend all day with Daryl, and he'll be brilliant. He'll laugh and he'll joke, and he'd be absolutely fantastic to be around. As soon as he walks into the ring, you wouldn't want to stand between him and the opponent because he can find that whatever that thing is within him, he can find that and he can tap into it. I, M- Macklin never struck me as a guy who had that. You know, he he always struck me as and and yeah, and I'm not I, defending Macklin. I I think he's fairly bang average to be <laughs> honest. So I, I'm not defending. Yeah. Uh, just you know, I think the uh, Frank Buglioni would be a prime example as well. Somebody who's very well educated, who comes from a, a steady background. Um, but I mean, when he got smashed to bits by Fedor Chudinov, he could have easily ducked out of that if he'd have wanted. But he stuck it out. He took his you know his licks. He got beaten. He wasn't good enough. He isn't good enough at that level. 
But, but then, but then I contrast it with a guy like Nigel Ben. I, I'd have a feeling that you put Ben in against Tudinov, the response from Ben will be completely different. And part of that's down to skill, but part of that's down to that whole Nigel Ben. Yeah, being Fuck an animal. That. I'm not having none of that. Right, okay, so just to sort of outline your point, do you think there's more merit to win a fight on toughness than there is skill? Is that no, no? But what I'm saying is, there comes a point when you have to go to that place because whatever skill you have, the other person's nullifying it. So you have to. <laughs> You have to go to that place. Um, so someone like, say, Mayweather, who just lived on his skill, that's what he seemed to be. When, when did he dig deep? I don't know if you can ever look at Mayweather as a benchmark because the guy was born with every possible advantage when it comes to boxing. So he was and born... added a few. <laughs> yeah. So he, by the time he was 12, from what they were saying, he had probably seen every style of boxing there was. So the, the rest of his career was just about, you know, dealing with what he's seen before. You know, this is a guy that was sparring Pernell Whitaker in his mid-teens or whatever it was, you know, and that says a lot about the quality of the guy. So I don't think he's an example. I think you have to look to guys like like your Mickey Wards and your Arturo Gattis, people who find that place, not just to take the beating, but to say, I'm going to throw something back at you. You know, Nigel Ben, Gerald McClellan, prime example. That, that ability to go, you're going to have to kill me. Now that I've accepted that, I can now start throwing shots back. So, skill's great until skill gets nullified and then different questions are asked of you. So, you think ultimately toughness will always trump skill? No, when skill is equal, toughness will trump whatever comes next. Okay, um, getting back to Foreman, he, have you got more to... Because I just wanted to outline a few other things. He was an ordained minister. What made him get into that, do you think? So... I, so I'm not sure if it was the Jimmy Young fight, and I, I might get pulled up on that one, but he had the, the whole out-of-body experience, as he described it, where he felt himself shaking, he was sick, and he thought that was God talking to him. So after that fight, he became an ordained minister. He never really retired. He just dedicated himself to his ministry. So once he was an ordained minister, he came back in 87 because he needed money for, I think it was like a George Foreman center of his. So that's why he came back to box. Suddenly realized, actually... I'm not that bad, you know, because I think his first fight was that he came back at 121 kilos. And as he started to work the weight down, he was like, well, actually, I'm not that bad. His his Achilles heel in the 70s, as it was in the 80s and 90s, was if someone could box at range for long enough, they'd just outpoint him because he kept looking for that big shot. More so as he got older, he was looking for that big right hand or big left hook, which when it landed, put people down. But it meant that he gave up a lot of rounds because let's remember, he was robbed against Shannon Briggs. Okay, um, anything more to add on Foreman? Because I've got your two <clears throat> questions. No, I'm, I'm good, thanks. No, all I'm thinking is um, I'm, I'm hoping he doesn't die in the next like month because we haven't got any material then. Um, but conversely, if he died like Tuesday of this week, We'd look fucking brilliant. Yeah, I mean that's web exclusive. That's podcast exclusive material. Yeah, but look, we we've just done his eulogy. He's not even dead. That's, if he dropped down on Tuesday, Wednesday, cash back in it. Right. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Um, I have two arguably argue inarguable. Fuck's sake. Argue <laughs> inarguable <laughs> points. <laughs> I will. I'll leave it for you two. Who wants to go first? So I went first last time. I'm a virgin to this. Come on. 
No, no, you got to take your lumps as well, then, because that was me last week. Yeah, hit me up. Come on, I want to take right, it. So you want to take it first. So you've got 30 seconds to argue a point, yeah? Yeah. Um, that doesn't at all make sense to me, at least. Okay. <clears throat> Anthony Joshua will ultimately fail because of the lack of punch power. Go. Right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't start me off yet. Do I not get a preparation? <laughs> Am I straight in? All right, okay. You can take it. Right. So, uh, repeat the question. Anthony Joshua will ultimately fail in his attempts to dominate the heavyweight division because purely because of a lack of punch power. If he could power. punch harder, he'd be all right. Yeah. Okay. Go. Right. Joshua will fail because his punch power, like, there's only so long that he can f- keep punching people that have soft faces. And ultimately, he will come across somebody who has a face like a brick wall. Um, and when he does that, he just can't punch hard enough. Like, uh, he's got all these other skills. Like, his head movement is so phenomenal. Um, he's always off center line, but he doesn't utilize those enough. Uh, he keeps thinking that he's got this strong punch when actually he's such a blessed foot worker and head mover that he should focus on that. Well done. <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, what a load of shit. <laughs> That was that was awful, but in, because it was good. Um, Terry, you ready? Right, let's do this. <laughs> it's another heavyweight one because that's what I love. David Hay dresses badly. <laughs> <laughs> the heavyweight division badly needs Audley Harrison back. All heavyweight divisions need Audley Harrison back. I think Audley should come back as a pro, do the Olympics come back out, call Joshua out and say, well, actually, I've won a gold medal. You've won a gold medal. Let's see who the real British gold medalist is. You know, they're about the same size, about the same build. Um, you know, an ordinary will actually try and beat Joshua without throwing a single punch. So I'd expect to see a lot of <laughs> Matrix-style moves. You know, he might have even tried some Shaolin Kung Fu in the meantime, just to work on on his positioning and balance. But generally speaking, I think, you know, it does need Audrey Harrison. Imagine all the rematches he could have, man. He could, you know, once again, try and throw one punch against David. Hey, man, that might even get him a belt. Well done. I think the, the the salient point that was missed there is that the one thing he's got over Anthony Joshua is that Audley Harrison is a unified prize fighter champion. <laughs> he's won it twice. <laughs> like, shove that up your ass, Joshua. Uh, <laughs> twice. I love the Matrix movie. <laughs> He'll try and beat Joshua without throwing a punch. <laughs> okay, well done, chaps. I guess that wraps us up. As always, spread the word. Try and get people involved. Any boxing fans that you know, pin them down and make them listen to it. Get involved on Twitter. Pin them down with consent, though. (laughs) Stay safe, people. If we're shit, tell us and we'll sort it out. Yeah, man, we'll come back in here, man. We'll relocate, whatever, man. We can do everything, but... Get involved. Say something, you know. Be, Be like John. Give me a hard time because, you know, I give as good as I get. That's true. At New Age Boxing UK. At the Seven Wolves. At the Seven Wolves, Instagram, Twitter, just whatever. You want to have a go. You want to see some of that fresh content, stuff that, you know, is happening that you can't quite put on a podcast. You know, get involved. Fantastic. Andy, you're not going to plug your own Twitter account that you never use? Well, I would if I could remember what it was. UH Pod Fiber. <laughs> <laughs> I literally can't remember my own pod. I'm on there now trying to figure it out. <laughs> it's <don't>... useless. <laughs> At, do Twitter. at New Age Podfather. So there's a gleaming uh, endorsement to try and uh, have a uh, to talk to me on. Tw- oh, for fuck's sake! Well, I'm end this now. I don't want to talk. This is torture. It's torture, right? 
Goodbye. And he's walked 60 miles over the weekend <sighs> to raise money for charity. So he's struggling, bless him. And he'd walk 60 more. <laughs> Next weekend. He's offering. Oh, Any charity out there want a handsome young single man to go and walk for him 60 miles? Just don't expect my feet to be in any workable condition. People who are into feet like that, you might have to send pictures. <laughs> oh, honestly, you don't send want to pictures. send stinky socks. Right, that's enough. Goodbye from me. Take care. Have a good evening. <laughs>